Well, good morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, last week, David began his message with a question. The question was, what is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? And his message was about, do we live our lives to be well-pleasing to the Lord? If your, goal is in your, if your goal in life is to be well-pleasing to the Lord, and it should be, that's great. Today, I want to ask you another question. What is your motivation in life? What motivates you to do what you do in life? And more specifically, what motivates you in your ministry? We want to look at what motivated Paul in his ministry. So we'll start by reading uh, our section in uh, chapter, chapter 5, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians. He says this, he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for the one who died for them and rose again. Throughout the last few chapters that we've been studying, Paul has been, uh, in, a, in a way, defending his ministry to the Corinthians. And his, his defense kind of implies that there has been some false accusations thrown against Paul and trying to discredit his ministry. The truth was that there was a problem at Corinth. There were false teachers who had come to the church of Corinth and were saying that Paul isn't the real person. He isn't the real deal. We're apostles. We're, we're this or that. And Paul's ministry was being discredited. And Paul has been, over the last couple chapters, trying to get through to the Corinthians that to say, no, I am the real deal. And these other people are phonies. And in light of this, we learn a lot about Paul and his ministry and also his integrity in his ministry. Paul's integrity stands out as a stark contrast to the false teachers. There's a huge difference between the two of them. And the church should really be looking at Paul as an example of what a true apostle is and what kind of and what a disciple of Christ should look like. Paul is an example. And so just a, re, a short recap of, of some of the things that have been going on. Paul said in chapter 2 that, um, in chapter 2 of Second uh, Corinthians, he said that we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul is not peddling the word of God as some that were looking to um, use the ministry as a means of profit, a means of gaining money. That's what the false teachers were doing. And Paul's saying, no, I'm, I speak from sincerity. And not only that, I speak from God. My message is from him. He was open and transparent about his ministry. It wasn't something that was secret. Next, he goes on in chapter, um, the, the next chapter, and he says that the Corinthians were Paul's letter of recommendation or commendation. It seems that the false teachers were, were emphasizing that you know, a letter of combination was, is important. 
And they were getting them from other churches, and they were also getting it from Corinth. And the false teachers had been given, um, given those letters, but Paul didn't have that letter. And he's saying it wasn't necessary because he says, Paul says, you are my letter of commendation because I've gone to you, I've preached the gospel, you got saved, and you're the result of my work. You're the proof that what I'm doing is, um, is of God. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a fruit to that. I don't need a letter of commendation. And next he goes on to say that he's also one who has integrity. He handles the word of God with integrity. The false teachers would teach it in a way of sh- that is shameful and contrary to the word of God. They teach in a way that is deceitful and crafty. But Paul says that he commends himself uh, to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And he is blameless and re- without reproach and above reproach. And finally, we come to this, this, chap- this, this chapter that we're in in this verse, and it says that, he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer to those who boast in appearance. These are the false teachers and not in heart. So Paul wants the Corinthians to vouch for him. They should know better. They should know that Paul is the real deal. And they should see the obvious difference between his genuine ministry and the false teachers. And if they looked at his heart, they looked at his, the heart behind his message, they would see sincerity. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, the Lord talks, talks about looking at the heart and not at the outward appearance. He had Samuel go and look for the next king. And he came to the household of Jesse and he saw all the sons of Jesse and was, it looks like he was about to choose somebody. And then the Lord said to him this, do not look at the outward appearance, or at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Paul goes on and says in verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul's life, he lived a radical and sacrificial Christian life. He didn't live in comfort. And he would go to great lengths to share the gospel. And he would be even persecuted, endure hardships. Some people might have thought Paul was crazy, out of his mind, for living the life he was living. But Paul wasn't acting crazy just for the sake of acting crazy. He was doing it for God. And if he was acting sane, he was doing it for the Corinthians, for their sake. There was a man who flew into an airport in uh, South Africa, a city called Kimberley. And he, um, when he arrived there by plane, a, a woman greeted him and said, would you like to come see the hole? And not knowing what, the, what that meant, he said, sure, I'll come see the hole. And so off they went to go see the hole. And as they went, the lady was very excited about this hole and kept talking all about it. She said, you know, this hole is the biggest man-made hole in the world. The hole was dug with simple tools, and it's about it's a couple hundred feet deep, and about one mile in circumference. People come from all over the world and have come from all over the world to help dig this hole in South Africa. And 
people who helped with this whole over the years, they endured hardships. They endured issues, all kinds of issues, starvation. There was murder, thievery, death, sicknesses. All kinds of things happened. Many perished trying to dig this hole, the world's biggest hole. The lady said to him, you know, this hole, it used to be a hill. You can show a picture of the, this hole. And the, as the man arrived to the hole, he saw these people working, or he saw the work of these people. And the hole was huge, very deep, and it had water at the bottom like you see in the picture. The man asked the lady, why would people go to such great lengths to turn a hill to the world's largest hole? The idea seemed crazy to the man. Why would people do that? The lady answered, well, one day, some young boys were playing on the hill, throwing pebbles at each other. And a man walked by and walked past and noticed the sun glistening on one of the pebbles. And when he caught it, he recognized a diamond. What is your motivation in life? Initially, you might have thought these people were crazy, out of their minds, for going through such hardships to endure, digging a giant hole in the ground. However, since, since diamonds were involved, these people had a motivation, a motivation to endure danger. These people went to great lengths to accomplish the great feat because their motivation was to pursue these diamonds. In Paul's ministry, he may have seemed crazy to people, putting himself in harm's way, facing persecution, tribulation, shipwrecks, near-death experiences. In a sense, Paul seemed out of his mind. But Paul was living like a crazy man, and it wasn't comfortable to the Corinthians. It didn't fit into their, their idea of who Paul should be. But Paul begins to explain that this is exactly the way he should be living, and exactly the way the Christian life should look like. He's an example of what our motivation in life should be. And we'll see what motivated Paul. In verse 14, we have his motivation. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ compels us. Christ's love for Paul is what motivated him to live for Christ. Christ's love for us should also be our motivation to live for him. In 1 John 4.10, it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't know what love was until we met Jesus. And Christ's love is what compels us. It's what constrains us or grips us to live for him. Christ's love leaves me no option but other than to live for him. And sometimes people cheapen or lessen the love of Christ. They may think, well, because Christ loves me, now that I know he loves me, it doesn't matter the way I live. I can live to please myself or my desires, my ambitions and goals. And Christ you know, will forgive my sin so I can live the way I want. And he'll, he'll accept me back when I want to take my time to serve him. But that totally misses the point of what Christ has done for us. When we meditate on the death, on Christ's death and suffering for us, we, and we recognize that the sin we commit is what sent Jesus Christ to the cross, we must live differently. Christ's love compels us, and Christ's love compels, compelled Paul with this conviction. 
Since he died for me, I no longer desire to live for myself. I want to live my life fully devoted to him. Christ's love left Paul no other options. It should leave us no other options as well. Since we have been freed from sin, why wouldn't we want to serve him? And since Christ's love is our motivation to, to, love, to serve him and to love him, I wanted to meditate on a few verses about how God loved us, how Christ loved us. One, Christ, Jesus, or just look at a few verses. First is though, because he loves me, because he loves you, Jesus died for ungodly, undeserving sinners. It says The Bible says, For when we, were with, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved me so much that he died for me even when we were still sinners, even though I wasn't worthy and didn't deserve it. There was no good in me. Why did he do it? I don't deserve his love. Another thing is that Christ, because he loves you, Jesus gave himself for you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live, uh, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for you because he loves you. Because he loves you, he washed you from your sins. Revelation 1, 5, and 6 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our, his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And because he loves us, I should live for him. Verse 14 again says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. While it does say that Jesus died for all, I want to make it clear that it doesn't mean that everyone in the world is automatically saved. In the context, Paul is talking to believers. There is a sense in which Jesus died for the whole world. The Bible says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole world. So in that sense, he died for the whole world. This means that no one is excluded from the offer of salvation. Christ's death on the cross was and is sufficient to cleanse you from your sins. However, the offer of salvation must be accepted through faith alone in Jesus Christ in order for salvation to be applied to your account. So as Paul was thinking about the love of Christ, that the love of Christ compels him, he came to this conclusion. Basically, he's saying, since Jesus died for all in Christ, that means Jesus died in your place. If Jesus died for all in him, then all died. 
And he died in order that we should live. And not only that we should live, but that we should live for the one who died for us. Paul was overwhelmed by the love of Christ for him. He had no other option but to stop living for himself and to live for Christ. That is what motivated Paul in his ministry. But he had another, he had another, um, another motivation. He goes on and says in verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet we know him no, no we, yet we know him thus no longer. Once we are saved, we see we, get, we begin to see people with a new pair of glasses. We don't look at them from the worldly point of view. Instead of judging people by appearance or status or race, or gender, sexual orientation, the, we see people now as precious souls for whom Christ died. We see people differently. Before Paul was converted, he used to see men as not living up to his standards. He was a Pharisee. He obeyed the law, was circumcised. He took pride in himself and took pride in the physical. But after he was converted, he saw people much differently. Instead of evaluating people by the standards of the world, he saw people through the eyes of Jesus. He had compassion on people, and he saw them as lost sinners who needed a savior. You can see some of the, the heart of Paul in Acts 17, 16. It says, now while, Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul was gripped when he saw that a whole city had fallen after idols. And that, that they, because of their idolatry, they would be doomed to an eternity in hell. In Romans, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It's his, it's his, um, his motivation to, to living for, other, for the Lord. How can we see people differently today? by remembering that Christ also loved them enough to die for them. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What kind of new creation is this? <clears throat> the message of the gospel is not a cosmetic change. It isn't an extreme makeover. We haven't just turned a new leaf. We didn't inherit a new nature, and we didn't recreate ourselves new. God didn't just clean up our old nature. He created something entirely new. In Christ, God has made us a new creation. Just as when God, was, when God created the world out of nothing, just as when God created the world out of nothing, when he saved you, he created you brand new. He made you brand new. It isn't anything that we do of ourselves. God does all the work. Now, but if I was asked, what, what's been made new? What's different? Well, you've been given a new heart, a heart that loves the Lord. But before, when you, before you trusted the Lord, you hated him and you wanted nothing to do with him. But now you see the Lord and you love him. 
You want to serve him. And you love the, you love the Lord, Lord, the Lord's people. You love the word of God. And you desire to see others know about him. Your thoughts are new. Instead of filling your mind with garbage, you meditate on his word and the things are lovely. Your speech is different than before. Instead of filling your mind, your mouth full of curse words, now your tongue is full of blessing. Charles, Charles Spurgeon illustrated this with a hog and two plates of food. If I had two plates of food, one plate with the nicest meal that you could ever have, you know, steak dinner, I put it on this side of the room, and I took on this side of the room a pile of trash food. And I put a hog at the end of the other side of the room and let it loose. Where would the, where would the hog go? He's going to go right to the trash. Why? Because he's a hog. That's what hogs do. They eat trash, they like it, and they're not ashamed of it. Now, while that hog is eating trash, if I had the ability to instantly change that hog into a man, and he was still eating the trash, what would happen? The food that he was eating, the food that he was enjoying, now is disgusting to him. It no longer satisfies him. It disgusts him. It nauseates him. He wants to throw it up. And when he gets up and turns around and looks at you, he's ashamed. Why? Why is he ashamed? Because he's not a pig anymore. He's a new creature. The new creature has become, has no longer be, this new creature he's become can no longer stomach the things that he used to love before. And sometimes our lives don't always reflect this new creature or this new creation. We are still sinners, and sometimes we end up back at that garbage. Like, why am I, why am I doing this again? We don't act like the new creature that I described. And we ask, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Well, in God's eyes, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. You are a new creation. That's who we are in Christ positionally. That's who we are. There's another thing, though, in our daily practice, in our daily walk with the Lord. It's not, we, are not always, we don't always act as though we are a new creation. But the moment we are converted, we are changed, and we are made a new creation. But that change keeps on going through our life. We are still sinners, and but we are being sanctified each day in order to conform to the Christ. The old things are passing away. Each day we should desire to live and be more like who we are in Christ. Thirdly, Paul has a motivation for ministry because he has been reconciled to God and has been given the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 18 and 19, it says this, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the idea that of being made right with God. I should first clarify that our relationship with God was broken, but 
It was broken by no fault of God. God is not the offending party. We are, not the, we are the cause for the broken relationship with God. It's because of our sins that we are enemies of God, and there's a distance between God and man. We do not want anything to do with God. Our sin is what separates us from God because God is holy. And since we are the offending party, we're estranged and aliens from God. But even though we hated God and wanted nothing to do with him, God wanted to remove the barrier that caused the separation. He wanted to remove the barrier by dealing with sin so that we could be reconciled. And amazingly, Christ took the first steps to reconcile us to God. Remember that we are the offending parties. But God wanted to reconcile us to himself, and he did that through Jesus Christ. And he did that that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God's desire is that all men might be reconciled to himself. He made it possible by sending Jesus Christ to the cross to deal with sin. Now that we have been reconciled to God, God gives us a ministry. If you're here this morning and you aren't sure of what God has called you to do or what ministry I have, I'll tell you what it is. He says it right here. The ministry of reconciliation. God has given us this ministry to all believers. It's not just one person, not just Paul. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given a noble task, a dignified responsibility. Not only do we have this task, this dignified responsibility, but we also have an important job to do. That's found next in verse 20. We have a new We have an important job to do. It says in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only do we have the ministry of reconciliation, but we have been given an important job to be Christ's ambassador. Ambassadors are still around today. If the United States wanted to have a representative in the country of France, the the US would choose someone to be sent a diplomat and sent him to the country to live there. An ambassador is one who works and lives in the foreign country. He or she would act as a public face to their home country, the United States. An ambassador not only represents himself, but he represents the whole country, the entire country that he he comes from. He represents the policies and opinions of the leader, the president of the United States. And the impression the ambassador makes of himself is the impression that the country will have of his home country. The life of the ambassador is spent among the people who speak a different language than himself. They live a different life. They have different cultures, different traditions. And when an ambassador goes into that environment, he's a foreigner. The people he encounters, he speaks to them of peace, of treaties, 
and many other important things that the home country has entrusted him with. An ambassador is often appointed by his country for a special and often temporary assignment. Now, the Bible says that we are ambassadors. We aren't representing the President of the United States. We are an ambassador for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have been given a noble responsibility to be an ambassador for Christ. We are representatives of Christ to a foreign land. Where is this foreign land? It's this world. Even though we live in this world, we are a foreigner. We currently live here, but the Bible says that we are no longer of this world. We are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. We aren't citizens of this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our home country isn't the United States of America or Canada. Our home country is the kingdom of heaven. An ambassador is one who is sent, sent out from their home country to a foreign land. God has sent us in Matthew the Great Commission, which isn't the great suggestion. It's the Great Commission which God said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our assignment is clear. We are to go into the world to tell all nations about God. Our message is also clear. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are God's spokesmen, pleading to the world to be reconciled to God. You know, it's, it's unusual to think of God as pleading with somebody, begging somebody. But the picture of the gospel is this, that God <clears throat> is begging on his knees and holding his hands and clasping it with tears in his eyes. He's begging you, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to himself. Come to me. And he has his arms wide open. And he's asking people to put down their weapons to surrender to him. And if this morning you don't know Christ, if you don't know him, I want to beg you too to be reconciled to God, to make peace with God. And if you've never received Christ, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to I ask that you, you receive him. And if you don't know what that means, please come talk to me or to one of us here. Be reconciled to God. <clears throat> And the Lord makes this reconciliation possible. How is it possible? We can be reconciled based on the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. He accomplished this on the cross. Jesus has done all of the work. There's nothing that you can do of yourself. He's finished it all. The last verse, verse 21, says that, For he, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible is clear that Jesus never sinned. In fact, Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect sinless life. And when Jesus went to the cross to die, he did not become sinful, but he 
Instead, our sins were placed on him. In God's eyes, Jesus was declared guilty and bore the wrath of God as though he did commit them. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's judgment and has made it possible for you to be at peace with God. Instead of being judged for your sins, instead of being guilty for the sins that you've committed, for those who trust in Christ, he gives us something that we've never had before. He gives us something even greater. He gives us the righteousness of God. For those who've trusted in him. For believers, God no longer sees, our, sees your sin, but you have been declared legally righteous before God. For believers, that's an amazing message. What an amazing, remarkable gift. For those of us who are believers here, ambassadors, Ambassador Matt, Ambassador Sharon, Ambassador Noad, Ambassador Howard, you guys are, you guys, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation to plead with men to be at peace with God. Do you know that before a war breaks out in a country, all the ambassadors are called home? I believe the ambassadors are going to be called home soon. The Lord is going to call us back to our home in heaven. Until then, let us do what we are called to do. Let's do our assignment as an ambassador to this world, to plead with them on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. How can you be an ambassador for Christ this week? Come Monday. We are an ambassadors for Christ on Sunday. It's a full 24-7 job. That's the reason why Jesus left us on this earth, is to fulfill this ministry, to do that. He could have taken us home with him, but he instead gave us a ministry to do. The Lord has saved us because... The Lord has saved us and he has demonstrated how much, he's loved, he, how much he loves you. And the love of Christ should compel us to no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you've showed us. The love of Christ that compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you. Lord, we pray that that would be our motivation to live for you. Lord, we pray that we would be ambassadors for you in our work, in our job, in our life with our friends. Lord, we pray that we would remember that we are, have an important job to do, to plead with men, to be reconciled to him, to be reconciled to you, Lord. We, we pray that if anyone that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would make today their day of being at peace with you, Trust in you as your Lord and their Lord and Savior. We just pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.